0: To get started,
1: visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One family's remarkable journey on mental health and their quest to improve mental health in America. This is Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL radio and available wherever you get your podcasts, including on the video platform of your choice. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. John Broderick was a member of the New Hampshire Supreme Court from 1995 to 2010, and during his last seven years, he served as Chief Justice. When John's son was just 13, he began suffering from anxiety and depression, conditions that went unrecognized and undiagnosed for years. His family went on a very public and painful journey, luckily one they all survived and healed from. If you recognize this story, it's because We told it with John on this show a little over a year ago. And in fact, when we won a New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters Award, that was the show we submitted to the jury. And we're very proud of that conversation. And we're very proud to have John back with us now to talk about his ongoing campaign to change the culture, the stigma, and the shame around mental illness that for generations has kept too many people feeling alone and afraid to step out of the shadows. He's written a new book called Backroads and Highways, My Journey of Discovery on Mental Health. Mr. Chief Justice Broderick, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Um, It's wonderful to be back with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. We're really happy to have you because we view these conversations not only as fascinating and edifying for our listeners and our viewers, but also a bit of a public service because you are trying in all of your efforts, professional, personal, and now in writing this book, to through sharing your story and sharing your, your quest on mental health, bring some awareness and bring some of the stigma out of the shadows. And so I, I, we, we really appreciate the opportunity to do this with you and be a part of that journey. Can you maybe remind our listeners, especially the, the ones who weren't able to hear our earlier show together about the circumstances that sent you on this journey?
0: Sure. Happy happy to. I'm a baby boomer, which I'm usually denying, but it's true. And so the the world I grew up in, sadly, didn't talk about mental health. Certainly didn't talk about it in a way that I ever heard of. And so I assumed everyone had good mental health, if I gave it any thought at all. And I had two sons, 11 and 13, when we started in retrospect, to understand what was going on. I had a 13-year-old son, great guy, smart, athletic, talented, really talented in art and music. Anyway, he started to suffer from anxiety and depression, which is fairly common, by the way. And half of all mental health problems develop by age 14. I didn't know that. I know it now. Two-thirds develop by age 23. So it happens at a fairly young age for many people. And my son, not knowing anything about mental illness, saw it as a problem. He personally was having. It was a problem with him. He was too shy, too reticent, too withdrawn. And so he kind of thought he would grow out of that. And we didn't see it because he kept up pretty good life. He was doing well in school. He had friends he was playing with in the neighborhood. He was a really good artist. And so we just didn't see it for what it was. And if we saw it, we always had a common sense explanation man for why that might be happening. It never delved into mental illness. And when my son got to college and got a master's degree, he's really smart. He's a lot smarter than his father, by the way. He started to drink heavily, I mean, really heavily. And so that's the road we took. And we were told that we were on that road for a reason and that was the road we had to follow and that he was an alcoholic. It wasn't true, he had a drinking problem, but we saw only the drinking problem. And so we made mistakes, well-intended as they were. And at some point we were told that we should put my son out of our house, literally out. He, he was probably in his mid, late 20s, I guess late 20s and and they said you can either put him out and hope he hits bottom or you can let him stay in your house, he's gonna die drinking in your house. He tried rehab, we tried that, nothing worked. And they finally encouraged us to put him out. And it was really hard, we loved him obviously. And we did what they suggested, as hard as it was, it was the worst thing we could have ever have done. We brought him home after about three weeks because it was too painful and we didn't want that phone call that no parent ever wants to get. And when he came home, his drinking was the same. And I I think at that point he was scared to death. Looking back that we would put him out again and he couldn't go out again. And so one night he had been drinking and he assaulted me. And I went to the ICU at the LA Hospital in Manchester in my smart talented masters educated son ended up in the state prison. I was on the Supreme Court at the time and while my son was in the prison I became Chief Justice of that court and it was a really hard time. The only silver lining in all of that nightmare is that once he was there they told all of us what his problems were and that he was self-medicating with alcohol they had serious depression, anxiety, and panic attacks, which they told us were almost off the charts. In any event,
2: yeah.
0: as a baby boomer man, I thought all mental health problems were hopeless. I thought there was nothing you could do. And I was wrong about that, too. And they worked with my son. And after about three or four months, seeing a counselor and taking medication at night and in the morning, his whole life changed. Whole yeah. life changed. And at that point, as a parent, ignorant as I was, I realized that we had failed him, that I should have known something about mental health. I didn't. I know a lot more now, obviously. And my son, when he was released after three years, has not had a drop of alcohol since. He's a wonderful person. And he's taught me so much about mental health problems. And I love him to death. And I got involved in the campaign that, that brings me to your show today, A genius of a psychologist in Maryland, Barbara Dalen. And Bill Gunn, who used to be at the Concord Hospital, also a psychologist, was good friends with Barbara. And Bill and I co-chaired an effort up here along with Peter Evers of Riverbend. He's an amazing person. To start to bring mental health awareness to the people of our state. And in any event, over the last six years now, it's kept spreading and spreading and I keep driving and driving, I'm on my second Jeep now, Man, I've gone 100,000 miles, I've spoken to 95,000 kids, I've been to 350 middle schools and high schools, yeah. and I have hugged more kids with what I was in New England than anybody living, not because I'm special, it's just because I got my Jeep, and people kept asking me to come to their town or their school, and so I have a good sense of this generation. I love them. I really admire these kids. They're smart and decent. But they have problems that my generation either didn't have or didn't exhibit. And so that's, it's become the most purposeful work I have done in my whole life.
2: John, it, it, it's really an ex- extraordinary story that you tell and and it reminds me that when i served in congress i served with patrick kennedy who made it his life's work after some 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 education that he went through about his own condition he made it his life's work to bring mental health into parity with physical health in the way that federal health laws addressed mental health it was a really it was moving and important and we got some good things done but one one of the things that it, it stands out in in the story you've told and the discussion we're having is that that and your work with kids is that just by having this discussion we can help this feeling of loneliness and helplessness that i mean That gives rise to pretty stunning statistics. One in four adults in America suffers from a diagnosable mental disorder in any given year, that's 57 million people and serious mental illness affects one in 17 adults. That's 6% of the adult population. And mental disorders are the leading cause of disability in in the North American continent. That's America and Canada for people between the ages of 15 to 44. In your work, is that something you encounter that, that people feel desperately alone and don't realize just how common mental health challenges are?
0: You know, Paul. That's it's so spot on. And loneliness, by the way, is surveys, you see national surveys, almost one in two Americans are feeling lonely. Some of that has to do with our new culture, our remote culture, our alone together culture. I see it all the time. When I go to schools, I'm probably the oldest person, Paul, that's ever spoken to these kids. <laughs> I mean, I feel 100 years old when I'm looking at them. They look about eight years old when they're in high school. So I think, how old do I look to these kids? But what's really amazing and what I think people need to appreciate is when someone my age from a very different generation speaks openly and in a vulnerable way, which obviously I do when I talk about my own family. Kids return the privilege. And so kids will come up to me. I wish people could see it or hear it or both. Sometimes, Paul, I'm in the gym for 45 minutes or an hour after I've spoken, during school hours. And some kids can't speak, literally cannot speak. They're just so emotional. Some kids will say, thanks for sticking up for kids like me. Sometimes they open up. I, I, I just share this very brief story. I mean, these faces and wet hands, they stay in your mind. I was speaking at a middle school one day before COVID. And 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. so I can imagine how old the old guy looked to those kids. And they're sitting on the gym floor, and I look 19 feet tall. Anyway, so I finished speaking, and kids start warmly applauding. When I was their age, if someone like me had come in and talked about mental health, I would have said, what is he talking about? Not these kids. And so I stood by the door, and they'd go out and say, thanks for coming, great speech, give me a high five. These are middle school children. And finally, near the end of the rush out to gym, there was a young man who extended his right hand to me, said he was in the eighth grade. And he said, I wanna thank you for coming to my school today. I said, oh, you're welcome, I was happy to come. He said, well, I wanna tell you why I'm thanking you, this eighth grade boy. I said, sure, why? He said, well, they tell me I'm on the spectrum, the autism spectrum. They tell me I'm on on the spectrum here at school. And your talk here this morning has changed my whole life. Can I give you a hug? This little eighth grade boy said, i was so taken aback. I said, oh, I love hugs. So he started hugging me, squeezed me, and then he ran out the door I mean, that's an amazing courage for him. And it wasn't that I had changed his whole life. I'm not unrealistic about that. But I think for the first time, Paul, in his young life, he felt safe. He felt it was okay to share that and that I wouldn't blame him or shame him. I see it all the time. The, the level of anxiety and depression among young people is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Center for Disease Control, they do pretty well-regarded national surveys. The Hampshire schools take part in them, they're all anonymous. And the data points should get everyone's attention. And the last thing I'll say is ironically, while some of the kids I see clearly have a more serious mental health problem, the vast majority don't. The vast majority of kids I'm seeing and hugging, I'm convinced, it's because of social and cultural forces Mm. living in a 24 seven world where everything you do or say is recorded and critiqued. And I think communities really need to stop the film and say, what's going on with kids? Why is this happening like this? Because it is happening and we can pretend it's not and getting straight A's doesn't mean you're doing well. Just means you're doing well academically. That's what I'd like people to stop and 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 talk about, but mostly listen to their children. That, that no was way, exactly way.
1: well, that was exactly what I wanted to ask you about, especially as a parent of young children myself. You work with experts, practitioners. Do we have a sense have, have we put any medical Knowledge to th- these trends, these data points that we're seeing, why we're seeing such skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression, especially, but also spectrum disorders among young people.
0: There's a growing body of literature, but I, I don't want to say that it's uniform. But I think it's true. From my own anecdotal experience, this generation of kids are smarter than I was, less judgmental than I was. I love them for that, but they are fragile in many ways. They're not resilient in many ways that's a general statement some kids are doing great but a lot of kids aren't and i think some of it has to do with social media and i'm not anti-tech i don't want to be like one of those old grumpy guys that oh technology i have an iphone and ipad i live online too so i get it but i developed offline that's where i developed and there is no social emotional growth on a screen. There may be mm-hmm. data, but there's no growth. And so I benefited from the inefficient use of time growing up. It was wonderful. I, it really it was very important. Nobody realized how important that was, but I used to play after school. I'm from a middle class home. We had family dinners every night. There weren't five-star dining but I was with my family and my family was present for me every single night because they couldn't really be distracted. I had expectations that were realistic, I think. Uh, They were supportive of my parents, not driven by my Mm parents. I played sports. I was a pretty good athlete as a kid, but there are a lot of kids who are good athletes uh, and I'm playing for the Red Sox. Today, we are over organizing children. We are shortening childhood. We are professionalized in childhood. Downtime is seen as wasted time. All of those things have an impact. If you look at the national data, kids are spending anywhere from five to nine hours a day online. And most of that has nothing to do with school. They are looking at their palm more often than they're looking you in the eye. And social emotional growth happens that way, eyeball to eyeball. When I was in school, Matt, they didn't have courses on social emotional learning. I mean, the course was playing in the neighborhood. That was my course. I knew all my neighbors. I knew all their houses. I could have walked through their houses in the pitch dark and not hit a stick of furniture. I knew them that well. Today, most people say, "Who lives across the street? Who are those people over there?" Mm-hmm. That that integration into everyday life. And growth has been lost in many, many homes. It's not because parents don't love their kids. So don't, don't get me wrong. They love their kids as much as ever. But they're swept overboard with this idea of achievement and structure. It's crippling a lot of kids. I, I mm. see it. I, I hug it all the time.
1: Mm. Well, first of all, you're in a way, you're making me feel a little bit better because we work really hard to serve dinner as a family. We can't do it every night because our our children are over-programmed. They're doing sports. They're doing swim team. They're doing basketball team. They're doing activities. And so we don't get all of us every night. And I can assure you of one thing that connects my family experience to yours from a generation earlier. It is not five-star dining. You know how I know? I am frequently the chef. And I've got to assure you, I'm not going to win any cooking competitions. But I'd like to focus a little bit for a moment on the book. At some point, you started the work before you started the process of the book. When did you decide that the work on mental health needed to become a book? Was there a specific moment for you? Well, it was
0: just kind of a gathering storm. I, mean, I, I had been traveling and speaking for almost four years. And then COVID struck. And so I was doing more on video, but I couldn't go to schools. And I had more time than I would otherwise. I worked for Darby Titchrock. And so I called them. I said, look, you know what I'm thinking about? I have some time now. I'd like to write a book over the last about the last four years, five years of my life here. And they were gracious enough to say, sure, why don't you do that? And and so I did it. And the reason I did it is I've been so struck by what kids have taught me. The book is not my wisdom, because I wouldn't have a lot to give you, but it's the wisdom of young people who are open and honest with me, a perfect stranger. I mean, every school I would go to, I would leave feeling privileged that they trusted me enough to tell me what was going on in their lives. And early along, man, I would say to schools, I'd love to come back and speak to parents Sunrise, And they would say, Oh, that's a great idea. And so I would go, and the you know, school might have 800 kids, it'd be 14 parents who would show up. <laughs> and <laughs> one in five adolescents has a mental health problem. So you can do the math. So a lot of parents weren't coming out. And some of that is just their lives are busy. I get that. But it's not a topic that a lot of people want to be identified talking about or attending a program about it for fear that someone will say, maybe Bob's daughter has mental health problems. Is that why he's here tonight? But what's going on in his family? So it didn't seem to be connecting. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, in addition to the fact I wanted to get it out of me, it is very emotional what I've done the last six and a half years. And I, I grew to have this feeling that I owed it to these kids that they were opening to me by the thousands. And that was really humbling, but nobody else was hearing it, just the two of us. And so I kept them anonymous obviously, but I wanted people to hear it. And I wanted parents maybe to read the book because it's not about their child, but it is about their child. And if it's not their personal child it's their neighbor's kid or their best friend's daughter, I mean, these kids are suffering at the most elite private high schools and some of the poorest public high schools all across the world. So I really wanted parents to read it, man, whether they will or not, I don't know, but it is my goal. And they're free to read it and say, I disagree with everything that guy said. But that's okay because really what you're disagreeing with is what kids have told me. That's what the book's about. I'm not all knowing, but I'm a pretty good listener. And I was a trial lawyer. Paul Hodes can relate to that. I was a trial lawyer for 22 years. I listened pretty carefully to witnesses. I listened very carefully in the courtroom when I was on the Supreme Court. And so I think I'm pretty good at hearing what people are saying. And in my former job at the court, I had to reduce it to writing and tell people what we thought of what they told us. And so it seemed natural to me to kind of hear the evidence and then write an opinion. And my opinion is in the book.
2: I'm I'm curious about how writing the book may have changed the way you thought about your own work and what needs to happen on mental health in this country. And I say that with the background of the conversation that you and Matt had on this show last summer, in terms of our culture and your observation that mental illness needs a Magic, jo- Ma- magic Johnson moment, perhaps the how the focus on Simone Biles and the Olympics or Michael Phelps or Naomi Osaka, the tennis player's struggles may help change the culture. And are, do you still think that what we need is a poster child, an American some American champion poster child to help normalize the issues around mental illness. So I'm curious about how the how the book may have changed if it did your views and what you think we still need. Well I'll tell you Paul, you, you, the people you mentioned are the
0: most recent and and my hat's off to them. It takes enormous courage for people, successful people, especially to do that, but it also helps break the stereotypical image of a mental illness. You mean you can win 27 gold medals and have depression? It's pretty extraordinary what Phelps has done and these others have done. What what really has changed me is that I feel that there are so many young people who are just struggling alone. This generation, as amazing as they are, and I love these kids, They are often afraid of failure, whatever that means. They don't want to disappoint their parents. They don't have any thought time. They're all busy. They're all running from one practice to one game, and the parents show up and cheer them, and then they all go home and get back on their iPhones. There's something missing. The other thing that I have realized after I get into this is that we don't have a mental health system in the United States. Now, it used to be that way for breast cancer. Not now, thank God. Everyone who might hear this will know the color for breast cancer awareness. Everyone knows that color. If I said to them, what's the color for mental health? They would say, you're kidding. It has the color. That's what I'm talking about. We don't have enough people in the field of mental health. We have about 1.5 million lawyers, Paul. I'm a lawyer and you are, so even I think that may be enough. We have 675,000 CPAs in America. We have 28,000 psychiatrists in a nation of 335 million people. We don't have enough nurse practitioners, mental health counselors, psychologists. And the reason we don't is not because people wouldn't go into those fields. We don't pay them very much. And then once they're in those jobs, We don't curse them like we reimburse the doctor who fixtures your broken arm. And there's also a lot of mystery around mental illness because it comes from a dark place. I mean, that's its history. And so a lot of people are probably like I was, but thankfully no longer, thinking whatever your mental health problem, that's basically it. So just get used to it and deal with it. Treatment is often very successful. Evidence-based treatment is very successful. So when I started this campaign, my goal was to make people aware of some of the common signs of a mental health problem, which is important, obviously. You have to know what you're looking at. I didn't. I wish I had And secondly, what can you do if you need treatment? Where do you go? Who do you see? Everyone listening to this knows this much If they fell today, anywhere, and broke their leg and couldn't get up, somebody, maybe them with their phone, would call 911. An ambulance would come and find you in pretty short order. You'd be taken to the hospital. Your medical expenses would be covered. If you have a child with acute mental health problems, who do you call? Who do you call? When do they see you? Who pays for that? And, how you mentioned Patrick Kennedy a while ago. I met with his cousin, Joe Kennedy, when he was in Congress. And he said to me, John, I like the work you're doing, but he said, have you spoken to my cousin, Patrick? And I said, well, he's not exactly taking my calls, Congressman, but I know who he is, and I admire the work he's doing. I do, too. When you're a Kennedy, that's hard. But Patrick Kennedy is an amazing person. But he said, John, I'm spending my life's work on parity said, I know we have legislation that says it, but it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. They don't. They still cap visits, they push back, they don't reimburse the same. So I started out saying, let's talk about it, which is step one. Two, let's find role models, people who are quote unquote successful, however we define that, who are suffering. And three, let's finally say, why don't we have a mental health system? And why don't we start to do that? That's what's driving me now, Paul.
1: All right, let's, let's expand your life experience. You have sat atop the judicial branch of a state of the union with significant purview over the running of that part of our, our government and our public life. I would like to expand your powers just for the purposes of this show to encompass the private sector and the federal government. You were just alluding to some changes that we need to see in the private sector. It could come to recruitment and reimbursement of practitioners. Um, It could include hospital systems and and insurance companies. There's also the the public sector, which we're more familiar with, and there could be new legislation, federal agency policy changes, even just the language that our political leaders use. So let's put you, for the purposes of the show, atop all of those structures and allow you to enact some changes. What are the most important changes you'd like to see in in the private sector and in the public sector?
0: Well, that's a rare vantage point for me (laughs) to be at the top, I feel like king for a day. I I think the, the first change, Matt, that needs to happen for any of those other things to happen is a willingness of more and more people and families They say my brother, my father, my cousin, my sister, my spouse, myself, we're having mental health problems and we're not able to find help. Because right now, even though I know that in spades, because people reach out to me or they talk to me in school. So I believe me, I know the customer base and I'm not saying all of them, believe me, but they talk to me, but they don't talk to a lot of other people. It's still one of those things you keep close. So the first fundamental change has to be, we need to verbalize it. We need to say it's okay not to be okay. It's just no longer okay to pretend you're okay. Unless and until we do that, we'll never have a broad enough discussion. But if we start to do that, which is what I've devoted six years of my life to, I think we can then say, why don't we have a mental health system? Why is that? As as Paul mentioned, there are millions and millions and millions of people. There are more people with mental health problems than have cancer, diabetes, ALS combined. We act like it's only one family on the other side of the railroad tracks. Not true. And so we need to start to underwrite a system that's fair and honorable and accessible. And that is often befuddling because insurers don't know how to underwrite it. If, if you break your leg and at your age, I say, okay, he's in good shape, he broke his leg, that should take eight weeks to heal, he'll need three months of therapy, he'll be fine. I know what that's going to cost, so I can give you a premium. If you have a mental health problem, how long will you be in treatment? How many treatments do you need? Will you have to do that later in life? So part of the problem is underwriting. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but that's a disincentive. It's not like procedural medicine. Then we have to say, why is it that we don't pay people to go into these professions? There'd be many more psychiatrists if we want to pay them. They are among the lowest paid members of the medical profession. I didn't know that until I got involved in this. And the reason a lot of people don't don't like them is they charge, it's all private pay. And they say, these people don't want want to be corralled. That's not true. They don't get reimbursed enough to stay in business by insurance companies. That's a problem. I mean, it's a serious problem. We don't spend federal money on research for new drugs and new treatments. And a lot of mental health problems don't require drugs at all, but they require different modalities to treat. Them. But we're not spending the time and the money on research like we do on cancer. President Biden, I'm a big fan of the president, and I, I knew his son, Bo who died so tragically. And he was just as decent as the president describes him. And I'm sure Paul knew him too. I did. But Joe Biden started a cancer moonshot. We need a mental health moonshot in the United States. And unless and until that happens, until somebody at the top of the pyramid, because that's where change happens on this, says we're going to fix it. We're going to do it. And we're going to save and change lives. But people have to be willing to say, hey, they're talking about my family. I can relate to that. I'm not ashamed of that. That's what I'm trying to encourage people to do. If we do that, Matt, everything else will change because people will become impatient. They won't be hiding in the shadows. I really, it seems simple, but it's not as simple as you might think to change that conversation.
2: John, your, your, your story talks about the, the overlay of substance abuse disorder overlaid on the underlying mental health disorder. And in New Hampshire and around the nation, before COVID, before the pandemic, we have been struggling with issues around substance disorder, and especially for the purpose of this question, I'm just thinking about the opiate disorders and, and the opiate substance abuse and overdosing and deaths as a result of opiate abuse, which are likely an overlay on underlying mental mental health Issues as the full force of the pandemic winds down, we're starting to get a sense of its impact on mental health. Of uh, now, three years into this pandemic, which has increased isolation, it has taken kids out of their usual social situations, out of the out of their schools and out of institutions, and away from away from each other it has closed places of public gathering and entertainment for for adults places which were the fun places to go to be together and now even in the wake of the full force of the pandemic my sense is that that there's a new kind of anxiety and and sense of despair at at work can you give us from your perspective what you know about what we know so far about the impact of the pandemic on mental health
0: yeah you're you're really correct Paul to put your finger on that because that's that's a problem that has exacerbated underlying mental health and substance issues about 85 percent of the time by the way substance abuse and mental health the co-occurring problem. And we're great as a society in seeing behavior. He or she's acting out. He or she is intoxicated. Well, they, they may be, but wonder why? What's going on? What's happening inside there that we can't see? But the numbers are starting to show. And during COVID, the number of kids, example, going to emergency rooms, community mental health, I mean, community hospitals with acute mental illness. It was staggering. Uh, mm. It's still quite high. And a lot of these kids, unlike the whirlpool that I come from, where had there been a pandemic, as horrible as this has been, and then it started to recede, people would have been back out, like eyeball to eyeball. Not young people. They, they're not eyeball to eyeball people. They're electronic people. So their world is in the palm of the hand. These kids are occupying a virtual world. I don't think adults understand that fully. I didn't until I started. And I'm not anti-virtual world, but I didn't grow up there. <laughs> and these kids are growing up there. So the return to normal is not like it would have been when I was their age. I'd be back in school, I'd be talking to people, it's on back on my iPhone. I'm just in a large room now with other people who are also on their iPhone. To me, it, it's it's debilitating. And my guess is, unless and until that changes, the immediate impact of the pandemic will wear down. But this problem that I've seen, and four years ago, it was before COVID, Paul, it's mm-hmm. not Right. Some people say, uh, oh, the uh, COVID caused all that problem, thank God, now we're all better. No, we're
2: uh, not. Uh, let, uh, let me
0: just give you one stat, which, I, I mean, it's just stunning to me. 2019, that was all before COVID. Looking back one year to 2018, the Center for Disease Control's annual surveys anonymous. You just put your sex and your age down, your year in school. 70 high schools in our state took them that year. 46% of high school girls in the United States, 46.6 to be exact, were depressed. This is 2019. And the question isn't, are you depressed? The question is, have you felt sad or hopeless for two consecutive weeks or longer in the last year so that you weren't able to engage in normal everyday activity? I never had those feelings. 46% of high school girls, 26% of high school boys. 15% of those high school girls in 2019 said they had given serious consideration, that's the question, to ending their own life in the previous 12 months. 15% said they had actually made plans to kill themselves. And 11.3% of those kids, high school girls, So they had attempted suicide one or more times. The number in New Hampshire, by the way, for that stat was 8.3%. Between 2007 and 2017, all before COVID, the rate of suicide for people ages 10 to 24, that should be the time of your life. The rate of suicide in that window increased 56% it's not just happening for no reason. And what I'm trying to encourage communities to do, mm-hmm. that's why I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys, is to say, get the book. I, I don't make a dime from the book, by the way, so I'm not shilling a book because I'm making a dime from it. And I couldn't have done it without Dartmouth Health. I'm promoting the book because I think it's right. I think what I'm hearing, not what I think, what I'm hearing is accurate from kids. I would love parents to read it. And then I would love parents to say, well, why are we talking about this more? The last thing, Paul, I've gone on a long time, I know. There's a film that I have nothing to do with, they make nothing from, but I've seen it. It should be shown in every high school auditorium to parents. It's called Chasing Childhood. Mm -hmm. It should be shown at the River River Theater. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. It's filmed in Wilton, Connecticut, a very upscale town. And it's making the points that I made in the book and I didn't develop the book after seeing the film. We are changing the experience of childhood. Some of it for the better, don't get me wrong. But the social emotional aspects that allowed you to grow up and play music and sing and be a congressman or a lawyer Those were probably in the oxygen. Today, it's in a curriculum. Those are not the same experiences. And so what I want parents to say is, how is my childhood different than my child's? And did that hurt me? Mm -hmm. I guess the answer is not going to be what their child would say. And it didn't hurt them. Actually, I think it benefited them.
1: You know, as we draw to the close of the episode, I want to provide a little bit of say on all of what we've talked about here. The book is Backroads and Highways, My Journey of Discovery on Mental Health by John Broderick, and it's available on Amazon if you want to read up on this. It features a discussion of the work of Barbara Van Dalen and the REACT Awareness Campaign, which John Broderick has been involved in to help recognize the the signs of someone who is experiencing symptoms of emotional distress. You can also Google and you can find materials on the REACT Awareness Campaign through Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And that can be incredibly helpful if you're concerned that someone around you may be experiencing emotional distress And to those last set of statistics from John, the suicide prevention hotline is 988. I'm going to echo something John said. I didn't know that. I actually had to look that up in the course of doing this episode. I know 911, and I would know what to dial if I had a broken leg. I would not know what to dial if I was experiencing that level of emotional distress or Someone around me might be, and I was concerned about them. So please pass that information on as well. And finally, I'll just close out on on behalf of of Paul and myself. Thank you again for being back with us. I think the recognition we received from the New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters for the episode we did with you last year was not really all about the, the quality of our show, it's about the importance of the story and the message and the information that you're sharing. And we're really happy to share it once again through all these platforms. So thank you very much for sharing it with us.
0: Thanks very much. And thanks to Paul, too. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege, and I appreciate the opportunity.